Hi there, well, welcome to our session, Caring for Carers. Um, my name's Amanda and this is my friend Cheryl. Uh, we're going to be sharing a session each. Um, we did think there was gonna, we were going to be in a little room with about 20 people in, um, and that's turned out a bit bigger than that. Um, but we're really excited about sharing our, our experiences of being a carer. So I'm just going to share my personal experience and then the lessons I've learned from that. So I met my husband in 1996. Uh, we fell madly in love and we married a year later. Um, we got plugged into the local church. We were very busy. He became a deacon. Uh, he was involved in preaching. We ran alpha courses, did home groups, um, pastoral care. Our house was very busy. There was people around our house all the time. Uh, I was involved in the worship. I ran a big youth project. We were involved in fundraising for the church. And then one day, Alan just got really ill. They thought he'd had a stroke, so he kind of like passed out. And they rushed him to hospital. And uh, basically, he had a really bad mystery virus. So the virus was so rare, they, it hadn't actually got a name. And it just went round the body and inflamed all the vital organs. So to start with, it went to his brain and he had encephalitis. Uh, so his brain inflamed. Then it went to his heart and he had pericarditis and myocarditis in an outer part of the heart. Then it went to his kidneys. Then it went to his immune system. I landed there and his body started to attack his own body. So it was really serious. It was really touch and go. They didn't know whether uh, he would live or die. And in fact, there was a man with the same virus in the same hospital who died after one day. Well, after about six weeks, uh, the inflammation all started to go down. So they basically kicked him out of hospital with a plastic bag full of um, medication of different sorts with no aftercare, no description, no ego out, out the door. So as a Christian, I did have a real peace um, inside me. I knew that God was in control and I carried on. I worked full time. We'd got two children that were 13 and 11 at the time. Um, and carried on with the church and everything else. And I didn't know, when I used to travel to the hospital, I didn't know if he would be alive the next day or not. Uh, but I was just calling on God and trusting that God would bring Alan through. <clears throat> so that was in March 2003. And Alan worked in a school at the time. So he had the March, then the April and the May and the June uh, off of work. And it got to the summer holidays and the July and the August he was still off work. When Alan first came out of hospital, uh, his GP said, oh, he'll be back to work in six weeks, uh, which I've since found out is, was nonsense to even suggest that. Um, <clears throat> but by the September, obviously, the GP had decided that, no, this is really long term. And Alan just wasn't himself. He'd lost stones and stones in weight. Um, he just couldn't get out of bed. Um, but by the September, he'd had enough of being ill. And in his mind, he thought, no, I'll go back to work because I'm, I'm sick of being ill. But his body was saying something completely different so from the September when he, he chose to go back to work despite the doctor's advice um, to the December before he broke up again uh, for me it was like watching a video of my life that I couldn't control watching the man that I loved not being able to function in normal activities hold a conversation uh, make a coffee get dressed everything was such a chore and it just wasn't right at all since he actually came out of hospital and he broke up from school on December the 19th, and he just had a complete physical collapse. Um, and then on January this 4th, uh, he had a complete mental breakdown. Um, so I just wanted to kind of describe how, what that looks like. So Alan was a real strong man. He's six foot tall, loads of muscles, uh, you know, really healthy, really fit, loved life, great sense of humour. 
to suddenly uh, going to somebody that literally shaped all the time. So all his arms and his legs, both of them, were shaking like this constantly, uh, hysterically screaming, um, <clears throat> with his eyes nearly popping out of his head, all red and all his veins inflamed. And um, literally for about two years, he just tapped like this constantly. He'd rock back and forth. Uh, it was very scary to actually see that happening, but he had no physical control on all of these uh, activities that his body was doing. And he went to being supervised all the time. He was like a five-year-old in an adult's body. So you couldn't leave him by himself. He had no sense of danger. Uh, he would just run out of the front door if he got the chance, and he'd run into the road, and he'd run off uh, for miles, um, just screaming, and we'd go around in a car, and we'd try and find him, and we'd find him in a village somewhere, collapsed, um, and bring him home. <clears throat> so when this first happened, it was actually on a Sunday night. So we went to the emergency doctor, who said, oh, this is really normal. Uh, once your brain's been inflamed, you know, it's like a bottle of Coke and the, it's, like, it's been shook up and the lid's come off. So it's quite normal to have a mental breakdown after you've had your brain inflamed. Give him some of these and give us some sedatives. Um, didn't realise how strong they were um, and that they actually knocked you out completely after about 20 minutes. So, but we put him in the bath because obviously all of this had been really sweating and things... Um, and then realised that actually he was starting to fall asleep so we need to get him out of the bath quick, so it's not a good idea to give sedatives <laughs> that way round, which we found out the hard way. Um, so for our children, obviously at 13 and 11, that was very scary and unexplainable. How do you explain somebody's mentally ill? So the physical's one thing, and I think we've all been, we've all been ill in some way, and we can comprehend it in our minds. Well, you know, broken legs six weeks later, out of plaster, uncrushed, you know, walking. But the, when it's a mental illness, it's a completely different kettle of fish. Uh, and I myself found that really hard to deal with. I didn't have a clue what to say to somebody uh, that was mentally ill. Alan was hugely paranoid. He was seeing things coming out of the walls. He'd say, you know, there's a panther in the garden. <clears throat> I mean, am I supposed to say, yes, I can see the panther too, Alan, you know, because I'm sure it'll go soon, or am I supposed to say, um, that's what's so stupid, Alan, pull yourself together. What am I supposed to say? And <clears throat> when I asked the NHS for help, and the doctors, are, and I would say, please, can I have some training? On how am I supposed to deal with mental illness? You're trained. You've, you've all done a degree. You know what to say, what not to say. I don't, know, <laughs> I don't know what I'm supposed to say at all. So I did feel completely out of my depth with this. Um, well, that started a roller coaster of many different antidepressants, uh, sedatives, Valium, sleeping tablets, a whole concoction. A lot of them didn't agree with Alan, so we had lots of serious side effects and back to the doctors and changing them. Um, and Alan went from uh, being somebody that had a great sense of humour. He actually wrote quite a few comedy plays and uh, they really got known in the town that we lived in to somebody that didn't smile at all, So, <laughs> which is I found really hard to cope with. Um, he, could be, he could be sat in a chair and he have got the television on and it's you know Sid James or somebody that he normally loves and then he's just sat there, blank face, not laughing, not smiling at all. Uh, didn't smile or crack a joke or laugh at all for about a year and a half, two years. Uh, and when he said his first joke, I just grabbed him. I was so excited. It actually, I'd actually bought some jeans from a charity shop and they were quite tight and I managed to get into them. And he said uh, what some people might think are derogatory comments, like you look like a, a five-pound bag in a or a £10 bag in a £5 bag or something. And I just, oh, Alan, you've cracked a joke. This is great. Um, and also, due to the virus, he actually uh, has a condition now called fibromyalgia. 
which is a related condition to ME, so he's in chronic pain in all his muscles and his tendons, uh, constantly from head to foot, uh, all day. So uh, this sort of made him bed-bound, so uh, he couldn't really get out of the bed or just get into the, the bathroom and back again would be the day's uh, achievement. So coupled with that and his mental illness, uh, when he did start to talk again, all he would talk about would be suicide, uh, which is very hard to hear constantly all day, all night as yourself if you're not mentally ill, um, that your husband wants to uh, really see suicide as a, a viable option uh, for the future. Um, when Alan was first ill, we did have to wait three, uh, about three months for the first psychiatric um, appointment. And within that three months, the, the emergency doctors talked about sectioning maybe about five times because you were so bad, but we had to wait for this uh, appointment. And I was so shocked that when I went in there, after waiting three months, and I thought, this psychiatrist is going to give me some answers, he's going to give me some help. And all he said in broken English after about being in there for about five minutes was, keep taking the tablets. And I thought, I've waited three months for you to say, keep taking the tablets. That's not helpful. Um, and Alan has indeed taken a few overdoses. Um, he's written suicide notes. I've caught him sometimes and just stopped him, but a few times he has actually done it. Um, and I found that very hard to listen to as a wife because I thought, well, was there something wrong with me? Does he, you know, does he not see what a great wife he's got, what great support I'm giving, what fantastic children he's got? You know, he's got a home to live in, he's got a family that love him. So it's really hard to comprehend uh, yourself that someone is contemplating suicide. Um, a, f a few months ago, I did actually get robbed at knife point myself. Uh, so I've experienced what it's like to feel paranoia and have uh, tremendous irrational thoughts. Um, and when you're living with somebody and you realise that they're not making it up, it's like they were saying earlier, you know, it's not a case if you can just pull yourself together um, or just think positive thoughts or claim a scripture. It's really serious day-to-day. -day. Cannot... Uh, put thoughts together, cannot sequence thoughts, cannot make sense to day-to-day -day living. Uh, Alan also lost the ability to understand why he should get dressed or clean himself. So he'd sit in his dressing gown every day and I'd say, come on, Alan, why don't we go and brush your teeth? And he'd say, well, why? Because uh, he just could not comprehend what, you know, what, why would I need to get dressed, why would I need to have a wash? And it was only uh, intensive work with an occupational therapist uh, doing lots of worksheets and working closely with Alan uh, two or three times a week that actually got him to the stage where now he gets dressed every day. Um, he gets out of bed every day now. Um, and this is six years on now uh, that he's been ill. Um, um, so six years on, he is a lot bit better. He does get dressed. Um, he's not as suicidal now. It just comes in waves, maybe every few months. It's not day to day. To day. Um, with his chronic pain, they want to give him morphine, which he doesn't want to go down that road because that's, you know, that just creates other problems. Uh, as a Christian, I've had a lot of pro problems in my own mind about all the medication that they've given Alan, uh, because you think to yourself, oh, well, you shouldn't be taking these tablets, you know, you, sh you, sh you shouldn't be depressed as a Christian. And so I I've struggled to cope with how much uh, medication they've been giving Alan. Um, Alan has actually got to a point last year where he's been fed up with just being on all these tablets and facing the fact that that's what he's going to be like uh, forever. So he tried to come off some of the tablets with the psychi uh, psychiatrist's support. 
Um, but unfortunately, it didn't work and he had to go back on them, uh, which actually, you know, depresses him even more because he thinks, oh, well, this is me now forever. I'm, I'm useless. He, he does feel a complete failure. Um, he does get very, very paranoid. Uh, really struggles with social activities. Um, meeting anybody, it really drains him, takes it out on him. He uh, gets convinced that he's done something wrong. Um, that people don't really like him, that he's made a fool of himself and I have to spend hours uh, trying to encourage him that nothing bad happened, that people do like him, he didn't do anything wrong. Um, also, he's had some compulsory behavioural uh, kind of conditions where when he was first ill, uh, he got very addicted to um, jars of spearmints, uh, dairy milk chocolate bars and ginger beer. And they'd have them lined up next to his bed. And if they got so low, he'd get really panicked and really catastrophize. Um, and nowadays as well, he still has... Um, he can only eat with certain knife and fork patterns. So if you give him a knife and fork with a different pattern on than the one that's acceptable in his mind... He thinks you've done it on purpose and that you're trying to wind him up. And if you, if you give him a different mug, he'll only drink from certain mugs with certain patterns on that. It really distresses him. It's quite hard to keep up with what's in and what's out on the, on the patterns. Um, we've had to fight for every service that we've got from the NHS and the uh, DWP for any financial help for Alan, any services we've had to fight constantly. So the future doesn't look good or set to change apart from a miracle from God, which I do believe God is in the business of miracles. Uh, but the world has no solutions to offer really for Alan, for his fibromyalgia or his mental health. So that's my story of the last six years. And now I just want to share some lessons that I've learned from that. Um, so the first lesson is really the changing roles that I've had to cope with uh, as a wife and a carer. So I see it as I've actually lost my husband six years ago. The man I live with now is a stranger, um, and he's, he's really like a dependent lodger that I would not choose to live with. Um, somebody that's completely dependent on me for all decisions. And when you're in a marriage, you know, you, you both have different roles. So maybe someone will do the gardening, somebody will do the washing and the ironing. Uh, maybe you'll share responsibilities of finance or all of that kind of thing. Well, I just have to make all the decisions myself. That's why it feels like I'm not actually married, even though I am. So if some people ask me, oh, are you married, are you single? I say, well, I'm both, actually. Because it's like I live a single life, but I am actually technically uh, allegedly married. Um, and my roles really are, sometimes I'm a nurse, or I'm just giving tablets, I'm hiding tablets when Anna's uh, suicidal. Um, I'm washing, um, I'm a carer, I'm a teacher, I'm trying to teach him it's okay to, um, to go out and mix with people. Or, um, I'm a babysitter just looking after somebody, I'm a counsellor, I go over the same thing for hours and hours. Alan has a real tendency to catastrophise, so any daily activity, maybe you get a gas bill and it's slightly bigger than uh, normal or... Um, you accidentally spill something on the floor or the washing machine leaks a little bit. Just day-to-day -day things that we can all cope with and can't cope with. So it's, to him, it's like the end of the world. It's like, we're never going to get over this. You know, it's... it's um, so I'm not, I'm not a friend, I'm not a wife, I'm not a lover. I'm these different roles that I have to change into each day depending on what Alan needs. If you asked Alan what kind of marriage he'd got, I think he would say, uh, I have a great marriage, there's no problems, because all of Alan's needs are being met. Uh, but if you asked me, well, I would say, well, I don't really have a marriage because none of my needs are being met at all. Um, so it's a really balancing act of changing my roles. And sometimes, for an example, with finance, 
uh, I deal with all the finances. And sometimes when Alan's uh, better and having better days, I'll try and involve him in, in those decisions and say, oh, what do you think about this? Uh, what should we do, A, B or C? Uh, and Alan, so for me, I try and... Um, I feel good to think, oh, I'm trying to involve Alan in this decision-making process of the finances. That will help him feel better. But actually, the effect that it has on Alan is... Alan feels, oh, well, you just make, I don't know, I just feel more of a failure and um, he feels he can't provide for his family and he can't make those decisions. So uh, it's really hard, really, with um, the roles that, that change when somebody's really ill. My next point is really knowing who I am. <clears throat> so as a Christian, I really know that I am a child of God, that God loves me, that God has a great plan for my life. I can call on his strength, I can get strength from him. And I know that God has good things for me, that he is for me and he is not against me. So knowing that, knowing who I am as a person in God, uh, gets me through. Um, so I can, I, can, I can call on the word of God, I can hold on to the word of God. Um, Alan's lost the ability to access his faith. So being for somebody that used to preach and used to tell people about God, you know, he doesn't know what the word Bible means, or he's lost that ability really to access his faith. And now I just think, well, God's not interested in me. He's a complete failure. Uh, but for me, you know, I can hold on to the word of God and because I know who I am in God. Um, this is a great book I'd just like to recommend, uh, The Shack. I don't know if anybody's read it. Uh, I, I read it over Christmas and it's just a really good book to explain through hard times God's heart for you as a person and an individual. And if you don't know God here today at all, I'd love to speak to you afterwards and introduce you to the Jesus and the God where we, we get our strength from. Uh, Psalm 119, verse 165 says, Great peace have they who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. So as I <coughs> call on God, as I follow God's ways, uh, I choose to forgive, I choose to serve, I, <coughs> I choose to show compassion to Alan and uh, commit to Alan. Uh, I have a peace and a joy that the world cannot give me. Um, <coughs> my next point is uh, having a fighting spirit. So I've had to learn that the only way that I can get the benefits I'm entitled to or Alan's entitled to and the NHS services is to fight for them. So I've put in official complaints, I've stamped my fist on the tables, I've refused to leave until I've got the gyro I'm entitled to, <laughs> I've demanded to see a supervisor, whatever it takes, that's what I've learned to be prepared to do. I know some people um, have given up trying to claim DLA, what they're obviously entitled to because of the the degrading system that it is and they just can't go through it anymore uh, but I've developed a sort of fighting spirit to think no I'm entitled to this and I'm going to do whatever it takes uh, to get what I'm entitled to um, a little example um, when Alan's got really bad uh, sometimes and I thought I, I just can't cope I need NHS intervention I cannot cope with Alan at home he's really in crisis here and he really seriously is going to commit suicide and I've gone down to a the local A&E uh, sat there for about average five to six hours until somebody's come to do a psychiatric assessment uh, and they've come along and they've sat with their forms and they've ticked their boxes uh, and then they see me sat there as a carer and think, oh, he can go home and they've sent him home. So the third time that happened, I thought, I, and I just burst out crying and I thought, I, I cope with Alan 24 hours, seven days a week. The only time I'm asking the NHS for help is when it's really, really serious. I know when it's really serious. Psychiatrist sees Alan uh, once every three months or five minutes. I live with him day to day. This is a crisis and he needs help. 
and you've just turned me away because I'm here as a carer and you think, oh, well, she can carry on caring for him. So uh, the last time that happened, I just broke down crying and I thought, I'm never going to degrade myself in doing this again. Next time Alan has a crisis and I feel that he needs uh, NHS intervention, I'm just going to wheel him up to the hospital, dump him there and go off and then I'll have to do something about it. So uh, another time Alan was really bad, so... I, it was in his dressing gown. I said, come on, Alan, get in the car, put him in the car, wheeled up to the hospital. He says, go for that door, Alan. Love you, see you later. And, and then I just wheeled off. And because I wasn't there, <laughs> they took me seriously and they uh, admitted him to Linfield Mount. And I thought, well, if that's what I've got to do to get Alan the services that he needs, then that's what I'll do. Um, <clears throat> so, and they actually, when they um, discharged him, they forgot to tell me uh, as the carer um, so I went mad about that as well. and that, um, So I've just learned that fighting spirit, really. To, I am, there's services out there you're entitled to, and basically fight for them. And, you know, if you've got to stamp your fist, if you've got to be a bit rude to get it, then that's, that's what I've learned to do. My next point is uh, laying down my own desires and, my sac- and sacrificing. So I've had to face that I'm not where I would like to have been in life now after care of somebody that's been ill for six years so that's had financial implications on us as a family uh we've not gone on the holidays uh, we would we can't live day to day as we would like to we can't just go out to the pictures we haven't got the money uh there's been an impact on my children obviously their mum's exhausted and their dad's poorly uh, they can't have people round to the house uh, like they used to because alan can't cope with noise and uh, different strangers in the house uh, as a family we're not so social because we, um, not a lot of people want to mix with you when you've got somebody that's mentally ill because it's hard work and it's draining um, we can't have people coming around to our house um, so that's created a lot of social isolation for myself um, Alan's quite happy hiding away himself but I'm not um, but I've realised well you know life's not a dress rehearsal and this is the only life I've got and this is the journey that I'm on so I'm going to enjoy it so um, even though there's areas I can't have in my life, I think, well, at least I've got a home. You know, at least I've got running water. A lot of the world hasn't. Um, at least I've got two healthy children. And I, I, try, I try and <clears throat> think like that instead of thinking of all what I haven't got. I try and think of what I have got. Um, and we've all got our own boundaries and limitations within that. So it's good to talk to the right people uh, because I feel every choice that I make has a consequence to it. So I've got to weigh up. Uh, those choices uh, and my response to them. My next point is talking to the right people, the helpers and the hinderers. Um, So it's good to be able to offload to the right people as a full-time carer that are going to be helpful uh, and allow you to spill out what you need to on the good, the bad and the ugly days. So if you need to cry, they allow you to cry. If you need to laugh, they allow you to laugh. Um, I've got some great friends where um, one of them sat on the front row there, Julie. Um, in the most horrendous situations, um, I've been able to find um, some humour in it. And that's been such a release to me just to be able to laugh. Uh, and just think, that I know this looks crazy, but for some reason it's just, um, you know, I can, find, I can find some laughter within it. Um, but some family and friends don't realise what it's like to be a carer and they can't cope with the fact that somebody's ill and they're not getting better. Uh, and you can end up having to support them at a time when you need support yourself. Um, <clears throat> so some family, friends, church, work colleagues give you the bizarrest of advice. 
uh, at times of great stress and I've realised who, who it's right to share with and who it's right not to share with. Um, in the book of Job, uh, Job, uh, if you don't know, is a man who got seriously, seriously ill and his friends sat round watching him for about, I think it was about nine or ten days and they watched him not get better and they watched God not do what they thought God would do and in their own frustrations they turned that on to Job because they couldn't work it out in their own minds and they said, oh, you must be doing something wrong, Job. You know, you're not praying hard enough, you're not reading your Bible. Just rise up and, uh, you know, don't have any fear. And, <clears throat> and that's what people have done to me and Alan uh, sometimes. And they've turned it on to ourselves. Well, it must be your fault why, why he's not getting better. And uh, So it can be quite hurtful at a time of great need that your friends condemn you and judge you and speak not with wisdom but from their own frustrations. Um, but then I've realised uh, from the book of Job, well, that's because they can't work it out in their own minds. And I've struggled myself because I can't work out mental illness uh, myself. And to live with it, it is very hard uh, to cope with long term. But I've realised who, who are the right people to, to talk to. And I don't take on the board the voices of the people that are, are telling me uh, or judging me uh, in a wrong way, whether that's professionals, family, friends or church leaders. Um, and then I've really found a life uh, for myself. So I've realised a few years ago that as a, um, as a human being, I need to find a life outside of just being a carer. So times just to en- enjoy myself. Um, I like northern soul dancing, so I, sometimes I go off and I, and I do that. Um, I'm getting into diet and exercise, so I joined a gym and... Um, that I like just uh, resting with a few friends and relaxing. Uh, so I purposely put these times in the diary for myself. I've got to have a life for myself outside of being a carer. Uh, so don't feel guilty for wanting and needing that yourself. Uh, because if, if you fail as a carer, if you collapse as a carer, who's going to look after the people uh, that need caring? And sometimes that's been a real risk for me just to go out and have some time to myself. Um, because of Alan's suicidal tendencies. Uh, but I've, it's been a risk I've been prepared to take because I thought if I don't go and get some time to myself, then I'm going to collapse myself and then I'll be in Limpfield Mount myself. So, um, and I've, I've come to realise, well, it's not my responsibility. If Alan does actually commit suicide one day, that's the choice that he's made and that's not actually my fault or anything that I've done. Um, because when, I, when he has been really bad and I've been with him 24 hours, he still found the tablets that I've hidden. He still tried to commit suicide. So whether I'm there or not, if he wants to do it, he's going to do it. Um, <clears throat> Jesus knew when he needed time out and he found a quiet place. He went to the top of the mountain and said, I've just got to be by myself. Uh, so I, I think well, if Jesus needed it, how much more do I need it? Um, my next point is uh, going it alone. Uh, as a Christian, God's always been there for me. But in the hardest times, sometimes when you really need a friend... You can be by yourself, um, and that's a truth that you need to face. Um, but they say that you, you're who you are when you really are when, uh, by yourself and alone. Proverbs 24 verse 10 says, If you falter in times of trouble, how small is your strength? And that really helps me at a time. I thought, well, I'm here, I'm in a time of trouble. It's just me and God, but this is the time when my strength needs to rise up and I need to be able to get through this. Uh, so that's really encouraged me. Um, I found a few books really helpful. Uh, there's a book called Self-Help for Your Nerves by Dr. Claire Weeks, uh, which somebody recommended to me. And it, it was the first book I read, and I thought, this just explains to me what's happening to Alan's body. I can actually understand. This is what I was asking the NHS for. Can you please give me some training? And I started to understand how the body works and what's actually happening to Alan and how he has no control over this at all. Um, 
And there's lots of websites out there. I'm not really a person that surfs websites and stuff. Uh, but the Mind and Soul website is a fantastic website. There's so many resources on there and links to other organisations. Two organisations that have really helped me personally has been Making Space, which care for carers of people with mental illness. Uh, I get one-to-one support. I can ring my support work any time. I can see her. I can just spill out myself. She's given me a lot of practical support, learn what my rights are as a carer, what Alan's rights are as a service user. Um, she's also got me involved in some NHS forums, so I can go as a carer and I can just share my ideas. So I feel that I'm in, um, influencing policy within the NHS and people are listening to me, so I found that really useful. Uh, Crossroads is another registered charity uh, that care for the... Well, they're there for the carer, but they go so many hours a week uh, to Alan. Uh, and I know within those hours, Alan's being cared for. Uh, so it's actually a rest for me, but uh, they've, the friend that, that goes with Alan... Uh, he's really built up a friendship with Alan and he's got him literally from where he used to go about three years ago and just sit on next to, to Alan on the settee and talk. Then they went to uh, going out in the car, just going to the moors and just looking out because um, Alan loves, well, used to love to walk before he was ill um, and just look at the moors and now they go, about, for about the past year, they go out and they actually get out the car and they go for walks. That's a huge achievement. It's took a long time and that one-to-one work slowly 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 over the years respite has also has been um, a great thing for me either trying to get alan in respite which i've only actually accessed once off the nhs uh, for two weeks but again with my fighting spirit i think right well I'll, I'll make some respite for myself so i've got uh, friends or family that have just had alan so it's just giving me a rest so i can just sleep catch up um and my kids can have people around and they can have a party and make loads of noise um <coughs> Uh, it's sad to say that a lot of churches cannot cope with people with mental illness, but as they were saying this morning, you know, the church is the answer. Uh, the church is where people with mental illness should be able to find acceptance and a way forward. Um, and I think Mindersoul is a great organisation and what they're trying to do. Um, I have found personally a real so- shortage of males within the church that want to befriend Alan and want to sit with him and go through this one to what, um, you know, three steps forward, four steps back and seeing no improvement and just giving out to somebody. Uh, because a lot of time we, when we befriend people, we want to see something back, so we want to get something out of it socially ourselves. Whereas with somebody with mental illness, you're just going to keep giving out, giving out, and perhaps not get anything back. But as I said this morning, where would Jesus go? He'd go to Zacchaeus. He'd go to the, to the man that was mentally ill. Uh, so I do think that the church can give the hope that the world cannot and the friendships that the world cannot and the compassion that the world cannot uh, and that we are actually the answer for people with mental illness. Uh, that's the end of my talk. Uh, 35 minutes. Uh, has anyone got any... Just Sorry, thanks. <laughs> Has anybody got any uh, quick questions just for a few minutes before uh, Cheryl... Oh, there's a mic coming. If you want. Oh. Uh, it's just, can you repeat that name of the book? You, you, you said The Shack and then the one about... Uh, Why it helped you? No. no oh, they... Self-Help for Your Nerves. Self-Help for Your Nerves. Yeah, Dr. Claire Weeks. Yeah. Um, can I just encourage you... With your children? Yeah. I've been looking after my husband for over 30 years with mental health issues, and I've got four children. There's no help out there, but I want to say they're doing good. Yeah. There's only one going on with Jesus, but they're doing good. They've come through it. They've all had issues to deal with it, because as a mum, you want to protect 
protect yeah. the children. Yeah. But that doesn't always work. You need to tell them what's going on. Yeah. But I want to encourage you that they're doing well. And I've just had a difficult year, and this time they've been my support, as well yeah. as my faith, which is very, very strong. Yeah. They've turned around and been my support, so I encourage you that oh, thank you. Yeah. your children will come through it, yeah. and the relationship with the dad is just amazing in spite of the difficulties with Oh, thank you. Yeah, actually, that, that was going to be my question because um, I really struggle with the conflict with being a mother. Yeah. And my husband's struggling with uh, depression. It's even more complicated for me because my husband isn't the father of my children. Same and, with mine, actually. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I feel a lot of conflict because um, my children really struggle with their relationship with him because he's their stepdad. And. I just find myself pulled apart. Yeah. And I just wondered if you, how, how you, I th thought they might be your, uh, not his children. I yeah. wondered, you know, what, what advice you might maybe give me about that. Yeah, I felt that myself as well. I felt in, piggy in the middle and who should I fought first, my children or my husband? And um, as a Christian, people say, oh, you know, husband first and then children. But, you know, your children are really suffering. And so I have felt that conflict myself. Uh, I have, I guess, like the lady said, you know, tried to explain to my children what's going on so they can try and understand. And um, I think different personalities of children can cope with it differently. So my eldest has really, really struggled with um, the whole illness side and is completely not coping at all. But my youngest has actually become a strength to me. Um, and she sometimes she's cared for me, you know, she's, and she so understands and she's got that empathy and sympathy for what it's like. So um, I just try and think to myself as well, you know, well, they're going to learn, you know, when they're older and they're in adult life, they know what it's like for someone to be ill and they're going to be more equipped than, you know, somebody that's not lived with illness in their in the household, uh, but I do appreciate that. Yeah, conflict is hard. Yeah. Hello, I'm, I'm Dennis. Um, mine's a success story, if you like, in essence. But my wife was, was when we, we're celebrating our 46th wedding, wedding anniversary on Monday, which is a success, isn't it? In this it day is. And age. But my wife was taken ill in about 1987, uh, and she ended up in Harrods Hospital. And they wouldn't tell me anything because they assumed I was, shall we say, knocking her about. Oh. Uh, and, but after about five, six weeks in hospital, they said to me, you ought to go to the doctor or you'll be in the same place. Yeah. So I went to my doctor and he talked for a few minutes and looked at his watch and he said he was too busy to talk to me. <laughs> so it was a realisation then that I, was, I wasn't a Christian as well at that time. And a realisation that I was very much on my own. The church didn't help, but we were blessed in that we were both members of a choir. And the choir had a lot of um, uh, nursing people, and they really understood, and they really were wonderful with us both. Uh, my wife was in hospital for the 13 weeks for the first time. Uh, she came out, and I think it was three or four years before she went in again. She went in for a very short time, and I complained. And uh, the hospital didn't understand what I was talking about. So she came out and then went in again, and God blessed us in that uh, she's never been in since. Uh, they were giving her the wrong medication, yeah. and in the end they found that lithium was the ideal thing for my wife, and she's a lovely wife, and I love her very dearly. Oh. And we are, we're married, we have two 
sons, we have two daughters-in-law, and we have three grandchildren. But there's a slight amount of depression again now in that my eldest son lost his job and we started looking after our two-year-old grandchild for four days a week. I'm 74, my wife is 70. Very stressful, very hard. Uh, we're now down to three and hallelujah, we're going down to one from uh, next month because <laughs> uh, he's got a job. Uh, but uh, again, I didn't become a Christian until after Marjorie came out of the hospital. Yeah. So I felt very much on my own and I didn't think the health service helped at all. No. And no. I don't know whether, it's, it's no good now, but uh, really, I, I think I would have liked to know whose head I could be banged together yeah. in order to get something <laughs> sorted. Yeah. Oh, that's great. It's I was at reception twice, and then on the third time, I realised something was not quite right, you know. And I was at work, and, and I was doing everything so quickly, and I thought, oh, I'm, I'm really good here, you know. you know. And then, then he says, it was near Christmas, he says, I think you're, you think you're you know, getting ill. I said, oh dear, what am I to do? He says, just pack a bag. And we'll go straight up to High Rides again. I says, what? I haven't had my tea yet. <laughs> <laughs> so I persuaded him to let me go uh, to a little uh, cafe and have some tea before I went in. <laughs> but by going in and putting myself in, yeah. I was able to ask to go on with him. And by, that was 1992. By 1996, I was well enough to go and uh, get, take a degree course at Leeds University. Ah, which I got um, BA, um, BA Joint Honours in English Language and Theology. Oh, wow, well done. And I think that definitely praise the Lord. Right, we, we better finish there because it's time to get on to the next session, but we will hang around at the end, so if anyone wants to chat or ask any more questions, you can do that when, when Cheryl's finished. Hello, my name's Cheryl Ashton. Um, mine's a, a different story. All our stories are going to be different. I'd quite like to know just sort of who everybody, um, <clears throat> who everybody is. Who amongst the, the people here are, are carers themselves? Would you just like to raise a hand so I've got an idea? Okay, thank you. And who amongst the people have had an experience or experience of somebody close to them, um, friend, relative of, of, um, of a mental health issue? Okay, thanks. I, that's just really, you know, interesting to understand where what I'm saying is, is falling. Um, I have some slides. Um, I thought I'd start with, uh, really, I'm, I'm going to share some of my story as a carer and, um, and then talk a little bit about something that I've set up and I've started to do uh, about, about the situation. Um, this is my story. I'm Cheryl. I'm married to Bernard. I have two children, uh, Benjamin and Samuel. Um, I worked as a community occupational therapist in social services in the field of adaptations. Um, I've also cared for my grandmother, my father, my father-in-law, my mother, um, and in fact had quite an episode of caring. Um, wasn't really aware. I, mean, I could catalogue that for you. It becomes... It becomes woolly when I start to recount it, um, that um, 
you know, as, as one happened, then six months after Benjamin was um, was born, my father became was diagnosed with cancer. Um, that was only really a 12-month journey for him. He died. We supported him. My father-in-law became um, uh, frail as well in that time. We were trying to support him. He died six months later. Um, it gets a little bit woolly there, but the year after somewhere, my mum went into hospital. She was getting deteriorating mobility and went and had um, a, a complete hip replacement operation. Now, I'm an occupational therapist and was familiar with the, the rehab following hip replacement. So I toed and froed up the motorway. She made a fantastic recovery. She was doing really brilliant. I was starting to wonder who I was. And when I've you know, reflected, I'll tell you some more about my journey when I reflect, I think that was the point at which things were going funny. But it was many years on, sadly, after collapse, before I actually realised that's you know, what was going on. Go over the next slide. Thank you. So I'm just sharing something of the effect of long-term caring that many people here perhaps can identify with. And, and I think sometimes it needs, these things need saying. You know, um, I was in it. I didn't realise they're objective things. <clears throat> but it's useful for all to identify. This is the experience. This is the practical experience of caring. There was frequent travelling up and down the motorway. Sometimes I was trying to run two homes. Um, the tasks for others took up all of my time. Um, I found, you know, my self-esteem and space for any thoughts about my own, myself were, were disappearing and going on hold. Um, your mental acuity begins to deteriorate with, with tiredness. And, you know, that would lead me to feeling really stupid about myself. I'd feel down on myself. What's the matter with me? Tea time used to be the, the worst time in my in my household, I'd be in the fridge thinking it just was so logistically busy, trying to remember everything that I'm doing, including some supplements I've bought for my son, and I would find it a real challenge and just keep feeling myself so stupid. Um, when you're living at, um, at such a pace and life's so full on, um, you lose track of, of a more normal pace of life. This becomes sort of your normal so for somebody on looking on, this might seem like, well, flip it up, you know, you're doing that much. But for you, you're used to trying to handle a million things at once. You don't realise this is, this is not a normal way to live. Um, <clears throat> my, um, my children, uh, Benjamin has Down syndrome, and um, he, he's 11 today, actually. And my older son is... 17 um, month or so ago and he has some specific learning issues as well and some visual issues so sort of him, keeps me busy um, sorting out issues and making a way and fighting all that you have to fight to get the things that you need and press ahead for their best interests between the two of them um, my spiritual experience um, they were both negative and positive ones really excuse me just drying up a little bit On the negative side of things, <clears throat> I, certainly I, I felt I had a continuous expectation of attending all the services. I felt guilty when I wasn't able to be at everything I would normally be, be at and, and doing. Um, <clears throat> it's like all the messages I heard were about giving it all away. Well, I was already giving it all away. And we used to even have a little sign on our the previous church we attended door, God first, Others next, and yourself last. 
well, God and others sort of took it all up. There was never even really any thought or time for anything about me. Where did I, you know, feature into it? I, um, I was already giving it all away. But on the positive side of my spiritual experience, I developed an intense devotional life. I was dependent on God's direction and his strength. And this intimate walk with God was my lifeline. Perhaps that's the testimony of others here as well. I really couldn't have done it any of the the intense seasons that I had to go through. I couldn't have got through without him. Um, I prioritised reading the Bible and prayer. I set aside a time every morning, would get up earlier to to have that time. Um, What became slightly negative was then that I probably became a bit religious and dependent. I was so dependent on that time. Um, This this was... um, Along the way, because I, I have experienced collapse, I've experienced total collapse, um, and I'm in recovery. Um, I became probably a bit super spiritual. Um, I was dependent upon that time for my um, f- to keep my emotions intact. Um, I was functioning on a mixture of adrenaline and the Holy Spirit. And uh, what I've learned is, though the Holy Spirit never runs out, adrenaline does. And I'm afraid I learned that the hard way. Um, I've tried to, you know, half an hour is such a short time to share and encapsulate something about your your life. Um, So forgive me if it feels a bit disjointed sometimes. Sharing the physical experience, we we moved. I had the sequence of this episode of of caring for one person after another and and my son with Down syndrome. When a child is born with a disability as well, you, you... probably many people experience it, you have a million professionals to go and see as well. We do eyes, we do ears, we do feet, we do speech and language, um, we, our, our reading and our, um, all those ordinary things take, we have to really rehearse and work at everything. So it's pretty full on, but of course carers have all the normal things of life going on as well. So you still have people in your family who get ill, who need your support, um, you still have those things to do. Um, and, um, and finally, the collapse did come. Um, we moved house, and that finally used up everything that I'd got physically, emotionally, and, and mentally. And just to share something of the actual experience that is, um, I couldn't move or think or speak at that time without pain, up and down my arms, chest. Um, my mind would feel like it could explode. I had no choice at that stage. I had to just rest. There was nothing I could do. Um, And if I did anything very much, my mental state and emotional state deteriorated with any energy that I used. The mental experience... The actual experience of that breakdown... um, I hated using the term breakdown. I mean, we all find things that we can't can't associate with... um, I collapsed. I'm happy with collapse. It was collapse. Can't take, take it any other way. Everything in the end said, had enough. We're pack, we've packed up. Um, there was an overwhelming feeling of aloneness, which is horrendous. It's dreadful. Um, negative thoughts are flooding you the whole time. You get a sense of panic and anxiety. Um, feeling like you're falling with nowhere to land. Um, there's a loss, you have a loss of memory um, of events, Information, knowledge of myself, things that I know, my own coping mechanisms. I've no access to any of it. Scriptures, I'd just done the leadership course here the year before. 
couldn't remember anything very much. And in the, um, I, I collapsed in uh, December 2006. By uh, Easter the following year, I couldn't actually remember what Jesus did on the cross. Well, it's been a slow journey to, to reintroduce myself, to re-educate myself. Um, although I, um, I'd always had a positive outlook, it wasn't about my out- outlook. I'd, I'd training as an OT, which was, which was an asset to me. We'd, we'd, I'd got some experience and background in having great expectations for my child. And as a Christian, um, I believed, um, I felt that God would make a way, and he always has made a way. But when this stuff happens to you, it is beyond your control. And everything that I knew, even as a Christian, wasn't even accessible to me. It had gone. Um, And um, what you, um, I look at that at the moment, what I did, what I learned, looking at what I learned, was I learned, first, the importance of physical rest. Just how essential it is to, to, to rest physically. As I was saying before, you know, it, it, it seems, it can, sometimes you can watch from the outside and think, whoa, that person's heading for something. When you're in it, and this has become your normal. You don't even realise you, you, you're expecting too much of your body. Uh, we, we are physical and spiritual. I, you know, I learned all this stuff. I've learned it at college when I was training. But, but the reality of it, when it's your world and your life, um, and I was... For those as well as Christians who found the fantastic power of God to bring you through things, we've got to remember we, we are mind, body, body and soul as well. And, and physically, we're, we're affected by our physical health. And you've only got so much energy. And adrenaline, adrenaline does run out. Eventually, you use it all up. So we have got to look at ways, and it's essential we look at ways, finding physical rest. And we can be, I was making great progress spiritually, I thought. Um, yeah, my body just packed up. And we must create that space to replenish. So the process of restoration for me, well, I felt stupid. I, I, I really, you know, because this, this stuff can sound obvious when you're not living in overdrive. And I did take comfort that some of God's greats in the Bible had also discovered these realities the hard way. Um, Elijah was referred to this morning and uh, when the, the experience has happened to you you're reading some of the people's stories in the Bible in a new light and thinking well thank God you know. and there was no medication then uh, people are getting through and I have been on the medication I am still on medication and thankfully I'm, I'm beginning to withdraw the medication now I'm two years into my recovery and heaps better so I'd like to give you hope from that point of view as well I wouldn't have been capable of talking like this two years ago and I was pretty deadpan, uh, you know, thinking and even just the very basics of washing, keeping the house going was as much as I could possibly manage. Um, and if you read through um, well, Elijah's episode up there on the mountain and yet so quickly after, and not until you've been in that situation can you, you really sort of identify life's like that. Yeah, you can, you can have all the fantastic belief in the world, know the word of God, be on top of all that, and yet when your body is wiped out, it's all gone. And it's very frightening. And we need support. Um, And David in the Psalms, when you read many of those Psalms, you you realise, I know where David was coming from in the midst of of some of this. And he, he was out there fighting the whole time. He must have experienced a lot of exhaustion. And exhaustion's... A serious 
a serious issue. You know, the Bible too in uh, Galatians refers to, uh, I read that scripture in a new light as well, that does not become weary in doing good. I've come to understand a slightly different slant on that as well in take care not to become worn out while we're doing what's good. And and slightly earlier in that passage, you know, it, it refers to the way that we're going to manage this and not become weary doing good is by carrying one another's burdens. So finally, I recognize the need for support. Um, So I realized I needed help. Uh, When I collapsed, finally, um, I was given six weeks support. My husband had to take time off work. Um, I couldn't get to the bathroom without everything just being burning and on fire. Um, and, And had to accept medication at that point. My own view had been... Christians don't do medication, I'm a Christian, I, this shouldn't be happening to me, I can cope, I'm on, and, and I had to finally come to the stage of realising, this is way beyond me, I can't do anything about this, I'm taking anything you're offering, because I need help, I'm stuck with this. Um, I was very gla- grateful for medication, and I think it is a lifesaver. And, uh, and David and others didn't have access to it. I've read some of their stories in the light of that since, and thought, when you read some of the stories of people... Um, and in different parts of the world where people now are not availing medication, it is a gift to our world. We, it, shouldn't, you know, it shouldn't be overused, it shouldn't be used instead of more practical, more helpful things. But thank God it is there, and God does intervene in, in a variety of ways. <clears throat> so they gave me six weeks' um, support from the statutory sector. We phoned, I'd... I'd collapsed, we were going to be stuck, but I'd have to go to work Monday. I have um, a 17-year-old and a, um, well then, they were slightly different age, a young son with Down syndrome who is, um, who needs constant supervision. And, um, and it's scary um, for a carer as well, that whole issue of what happens if that was, that was awful, realising, my God, if I, I can't go under. I can't go under. Everybody's, everybody's resting on me if I go under. What, what's going to happen? And you're looking for help and you're looking for support. And probably many of you here have found there's not a lot on offer. Which, and I have worked the other side of the service as well. And even though when I phoned and said, this is my predicament and I need some help, and they're telling me, um, well, you don't have any unmet needs. Even though I rationalised in my head, Okay, what they mean is the boxes that they're reading through on their assessment criteria, I don't actually fit into any of those in order to say, well, all that they've got resources in answer to that box if they were to tick it. Because the boxes are actually about the resources that they've got available, not actually about whether you've got any needs. I've obviously got needs. Um, It didn't come as a great deal of comfort, even though I was able to rationalise that. I still, you still left there thinking, does anybody know? Does anybody care? Is there anybody out there who's going to help? And you're feeling very vulnerable. Um, So I had six weeks support, and then it was, you know, the social worker came around. I thought we were having a discussion about what would happen next and how we would, no, it's finished, that's gone. Bernard's back, going to be back, um, was going to be back at work. So I just got to muddle through. That, That was how it was. And I'm moving and getting ahead, slightly ahead of myself. It was in that time that I thought, I'm going to do something about this. When I, when I get better, I'm going to do something about this. It's going, to, it's going to be different in some way. So towards recovery... You said unmet, 
No, unmet needs. That was the assessment of the social services. <clears throat> um, I had no unmet needs. So I've, I've phoned to ask for some continuing um, help um, to support my child. I've collapsed. I'm only six weeks into recovery. And I'm still finding it rather difficult even just to... I just get through the washing and to cook a meal for the day. I've, I've done the business for, for the day. Um, but I, I work with my son as well on his literacy and his numeracy and his language. And all those are really um, seriously important to me. And I was expressing this as well. Because without that sort of extra input, that they're Benjamin's hope of inclusion in the rest of life. So for me as well, they're very important. I'm working really hard on, on the things I do with him to just be able to get through the day... Um, so I was expressing those things, um, and they, <clears throat> I didn't have a box that they would tick. So they're saying, you have no unmet needs. There are no needs that we can provide a service for, because presumably I was breathing and walking. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, it's okay. I'm not in bed any longer. Um, I did, I think, go to bed for a week and a half or something, then re- realized, well, believe in my body, you know, you can't stay there and it wasn't because of how I felt it was because of what my body did when I moved it it's, it's not a good it's not a good experience um, and part of that is I don't want anybody else to go there um, but it gave me some time to reflect and uh, consider um, I learned to forgive myself because I did feel like I'd failed I was dealing with this sense of being stupid and failing all that lot seems obvious when it's, not you, when it's not you living in overdrive. I joined a carer support group, and it was there that helped me realise that, you know, this is a circumstance, and there's other people who share this circumstance. And and recognised the big two issues that, as carers, we are in battle with constantly, which are isolation and exhaustion. And the effect they have on anybody, that if you're isolated and exhausted, you're looking at a mental health issue. They're, they're things that will lead to problems and difficulties. So they're what we have to tackle. That's what we have to do something about and be positive about addressing our needs for physical rest and for engagement in a, in a social world that has meaning for us as people. And it also helped me to restore my dignity. I didn't feel very dignified having collapsed. I'm a Christian, I'm a professional, I'm not, that's not supposed to happen to me. But it did. It did, it was a reality, and it can happen to anybody. So my response was that it had been a horrendous experience, and I don't want anybody else to go where I've been. And um, I resolved I would do something about it when I recovered. And I began to consider the kind of help and support that others like me need to not become weary doing good and to combat the effects of our enemies, isolation and exhaustion. I'm I'm sure individuals as well have others. I'm highlighting those two big major ones that are, um, when you recognise, they're a circumstance, they're something that is going to lead to difficulties. It's not about me, it's not that I'm a failure, it's not that I'm stupid, it's not that I just can't handle life, It's it's not any of that. These are issues that have to be, we have to address in a positive way. So potential has um, gradually become my, <clears throat> my, my, my uh, way forward in life. Um, so I've set up, as a ministry of this church, as a, a, um, 
an outreach ministry. This is our church. We moved two and a half years ago from Rochdale. We've been coming to the church for five years, and the year before my breakdown, which I'm sure it contributed, to and thrown across the Pennines, um, I did the leadership course here. And that built for me some relationships in which to um, then set into... It's not as clear-cut as that. It's arrived, and I came to realise, I think this is what I came here for, and I think this is part of my calling, and, uh, and this is a positive way forward. Um, I've, I've acquired knowledge and understanding through the experiences. Um, I've set up a support group for families. Um, I, I've, we're in this for a lifetime. Benjamin was born with Down syndrome. This is going to be for life. But we want as near, near as normal family life as, as anybody else. We want the same things other people want in their families. We want to, to do normal things and have fun. And, um, and I realised I needed support. It's going to need other people. Before I, found, I began the support group, I did begin to gather other people who would be interested and realise I'm not setting something up by myself. I wouldn't have the energy. And if it depended on me, I, I couldn't know how much energy I'd have. And it's something I have to continually look at and address and sometimes pull back on my own energy levels and pace that. But I do have the support now which of a number of people who are sort of my core team. I've got somebody sitting here at the front as well as part of that team. Um, so I've started with, uh, with some family fun sessions, um, a place where families can come and um, be aware that we've thought about their additional needs I could have, you know, there's so much more you can say. And one of the issues I did want to highlight that I haven't put in here is about inclusion. And, and I want to say that if people are going to be able to help carers, we need to make an environment um, accessible and inclusive for the people we care for. Um, very much I began to realise that I've got to get out there and develop the opportunities for Benjamin because he, he's, I've got to be happy about where he is before I can pull back. You know, I, I, he is dependent on me because there's only me who understands him. And, and while that continues, I've never got any space to myself. Um, and so I, I've also come to realise that part of my role and what I expect through potential is that I'm, I'm encouraging and supporting and getting alongside people to, to, to gain the understanding of what's involved in making an environment inclusive for people they haven't begun, they, they ha they're not used to thinking about. Um, with potential, we set up some family fun sessions. I've got a few pictures of some things that we've done. Start, we started in July with a beach party. I wanted it to be something that was of quality. I have to say, sometimes when we first arrived in Bradford and we were all worn out and we were desperate, I asked, uh, phoned about somewhere and he went to that situation and um, I said never again. He came back and I'd got issues to unpack and it felt like it was not. It hadn't been a good experience. And when I spoke to other parents, they'd all had a similar experience that particular environment um and what I, I, we, we want quality we you know modern parents have got high expectations for our children we're expecting them to be able to achieve things and we want other people who partner with us to to bring out the potential of our children um i'm aware that i'm, I'm being signaled time's running out um, and i do want people to have time to ask questions so i'll try and just sort of whip through, I'll, I'll summarise these bits and then let people ask me things. Um, 
I've set up family fund sessions that are aimed at families with children up to 14. I have a team of people who, who are helping with that, so people will work with, uh, with, the, with the children, and parents can come and just have a chat. It's very much about siblings as well. I'm looking at activities for the children, individual children who come and, um, and siblings to engage in and develop relationships. And it'd and it be a fun setting, a place we just come to have a good time and meet with other people a bit like us. Um, and the other main area that I was sort of next planning to move with that I've started is a parent support group. Um, we've begun to meet in, in our new coffee shop on uh, a, a Thursday morning for coffee. And it's my, um, my current uh, plan to, I want to develop training and support for parents, looking at, looking at some of the things that, I, that have been helpful to me and try and make that information available. Um, that was, yep, the parent support group. Um, the, the areas of training I'm looking at at the moment are some behaviour management strategies. Um, I did a, a course through the Down Syndrome Support Group with the NSPCC and I'm, I'm liaising with them at the moment about us working together um, to do some behaviour management for parents. Behaviour management is a challenge for every parent, but when your child has, has got uh, learning issues and uh, disabilities and other things as well, there's just more to consider. And, um, and if you're just left by yourself, it's helpful to be with, with others, thinking through some of those issues and the impact on them. Looking at a boundaries course, you know, our own personal development as well and how that influences the children. Some training for the team, but many of them have, have um, I'm saying many, you know, we're, we're about five or six regular helpers. They've got mixed level of experience. I've got, I've caught a heart for knowing that this is really important. We need to offer support in this way and, and are asking for different amounts of, of training. And, and craft activities. Um, when I joined the support group, I joined, um, they offered craft activities. And it was so long since I've ever just sat and done something that, that I enjoyed and actually produced something and took home, made some jewellery. It was, it, it's, a good, it's a good feeling. Um, and some of the other areas that I'm looking at in the future, um, other areas of support. Um, I'll come back to the top one last. We want to look at some trips out this summer. Um, and supported park visits. When a family has a child with special needs and say another toddler and things, sometimes the logistics are just so great for people that it's, um, it's a real gift to just offer <clears throat> the organisation and some extra pairs of hands. You can just go out and be like a normal family and mix with other people. And in many ways, you don't have to do... I kept saying to the team, you know, in many ways, we don't have to do a great deal. It's just that people have thought about you, are making provision have thought about, if there's somebody else there, that there's the understanding and support, makes such a big difference in your world when you're just on your own with it so much, getting worn out and exhausted. Um, we're looking at, at the moment, I'm, I'm, this, this issue of inclusion is one that, I'm, I'm all, that I've highlighted, and I'm talking with our youth ministry at the moment, and we're looking at developing a mentoring system with individuals. We're just going to start with the, the, the first child that we're in relationship with, a 19-year-old young man, and, and, and begin the process. And um, um, I've also been talking to our mums and tots, the people who are doing that, to, to just keep on nudging out there and helping people gain insight and understanding. Um, it's a little-by-little little process. And just to encourage people, they don't have to, become, they have, don't have to start off as experts just the heart to realise this is an issue and people need support and if we can help you with the people you are looking after, we can help you. Um, because there's this issue of everybody in the family's potential. And that's why I've called the support group Potential because 
I'm interested in the potential of everybody in the family, worn-out carers and left-behind siblings and the person with, uh, with, with a disability issue that the world doesn't understand. Um, the after-school club is one of my dreams. Um, it's not something I've got initial plans for, um, but it's something that I'm sort of trusting when the door opens, resources become available, it's the right time. That's, that's something that I would love to see um, happen. And some of my vision, I think maybe I'll be supporting, I'll be encouraging others, or in forums where I'm making sure some of it is happening. And I'm attending some forums at the moment. But you can't build them in a day, and I can't be everywhere, and I've got to measure the amount of energy I've got. But there are things that we can do that are not rocket science, and they're not huge, but can make a big difference to, to people's worlds. Thank you. Any uh, specific questions? Just checking in here. I'm interested to know what the attitude of the church leadership has been to your ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but we're, we're part of this church here. I mean, the, the reality is that um, I try to keep this. This could be a long answer, and I'm trying to make it short. 20 years ago, I did some assessments, less than 20 years ago, of people coming out of long-stay institutions. The point of that is the, the road of inclusion is we're early on it. We're actually early. People's understanding, and, and when you get to realise that the, the way, why people haven't thought about including a child with, with learning disability is because they've had very little experience of it, and up till more recent times, there's not been the ask on us. But there is an ask now, and if you get alongside people... Um, and encourage people and you I've, I've actually I've, I've grown in that journey and realizing how you engage other people so you don't come across in a threatening way saying you should be doing this you should be doing that but saying look this is this is something and helping people come on board with understanding um, so the leadership have been from my early ideas I was making myself accountable to somebody in the leadership team who's been understanding where I've been coming from seeing my road to recovery and has been supportive and when I started Potential it just caught the wave of our Love Bradford um, outreach initiative so I just got we were straight on the crest of a wave of being part of the Love Bradford um, outreach ministry so that's been quite a helpful thing for us Uh, I just wondered um, what, what you've learned and are applying from your experience that's going to prevent like, potential becoming an- another, another potential sort of nervous breakdown for you. What, what, what is it that's going to be different, do you think, this time round? <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> um, I mean, some of the stuff that I've learned sort of attitude-wise that I was sharing, that um, to be aware there's only so much you can do is, is not negative, is not that you're a failure, is not that, you know, I, I had so many voices in my head, I think, thinking that I should be able to do so much more than is actually physically possible for anybody, and probably many carers do. Normal is already, be, you know, f- is already full on, so if something additional happens in life, it takes you into, uh, over the edge. So I've learned some really important stuff about that. I decided to begin with a team, I wasn't going to do anything start or anything without other people with me because if it just depended on me I you know I, I might have to just pull back because of my energies and I know I've now put that as um, before I would have thought well what I'm doing is the most important thing and I've come to realize no 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 none of that will get done if I collapse my health is very is very much an important thing 
and um, and I, I, I'm learning how to um, actually preparing for this. And I've started a course to help me, just a very part-time course, help me prepare the training. I had a very stressed out week a couple of weeks ago, and I've actually, you know, worked out that I have to do less and tell people, sorry, I'm pulling back on that because. Um, so it's those adjustments, I think, and realising you have to work within your limits. And I don't feel guilty about it. I, I don't anymore. I would have probably at one time and thought, ooh, this expect on you, that ask on you, should be able to, don't anymore, because I'm not going back where I went. Um, and if people don't get it, that they'll get it down the road, maybe, or um, whatever. But this is, this is very important now. And it, I think it's important that we guard ourselves and if pe- and, and deal with that because sometimes people don't get it do they and um, well you know God gets it one last question hi, hi. thanks for being open and honest and um, explaining to us what it feels like and what you've been through mm-hmm. in, in the situation because I had a tough time with my son um, when he went through it um, when he was following me in his illness taking him to church and he came to church with me and it was like what do I do? People don't understand and when he was doing all his strange movements and everything um, having to say look sit down be calm, do everything with me and um, people sorry to say in the church keeping away from you and you know you can actually see it but I thank God that with your strength and I'm thanking you for being open that he has he's healed you and I could see that and I could see now with the seven years eight years that I've had with my own son that he's getting better because now the church have changed and you're helping us with your being your openness yeah to come to say you're not alone in this. Yes. Thank you for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, if anyone's got any more questions, Cheryl and Amanda around afterwards for you to be able to ask them questions. Okay. Thank you. I have also put some, um, some sort of networking leaflets on the top here. A lady was asking a question before, and I, and I um, want you to be aware of Care for the Family. Um, I've just linked myself up with Care for the Family. Um, what, I think one of the things I'm, you know, I'm very, very mindful of your question because I'm continually asking myself that. I've got up myself up and going again, but I mustn't burn out again. Um, and I'm, one of the things I'm doing is maybe linking, networking, but not doing anything that's demanding stuff for me to do um, or only within you know, limits. Um, Care for the Family have now developed um, a, a network for, uh, for families with children with disabilities, of, uh, and I'm, I'm becoming one of their befrienders, which they have boundaries around how that relationship works. Um, they've also got a number of really wonderful, um, very practical, Care for the Family are a very practical, Christian-based organisation, very 21st century in their approach, very, very practical in reaching people where they're at. It's for anybody. You don't have to be a Christian. Um, I'm very thoughtful about the practical ideas. There may be things on there that could help you, and Care for the Family certainly... Uh, there are also signposters. They'll connect people up with other people who could help them. They've been busy networking themselves. And other organisations that, you, if you in similar sort of world to mine, you might find uh, useful, as well as some leaflets about potential about the support group and some pictures. Thank you.